Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I am not your pastor. I am Adam Harwood, and uh, it's a privilege to share with you this morning uh, to bring the sermon. Uh, regrettably, it's because Pastor Chad has some sick children this morning, and so he could not be here uh, this morning. So we want to be sure to remember him and his family in our prayers, and I appreciate the invitation from him to share this morning. Last Christmas, I was with soldiers. Here's a picture of our Christmas Eve candlelight service. We were uh, preparing to go overseas, and uh, we were at Camp McGregor in New Mexico, out in the desert, preparing for our deployment to the Middle East. And on Christmas Eve, we lit candles and sang, O Holy Night, and I read them the story of Luke chapter 2, and told them why Jesus came to earth, how he meets our needs. So this is a very different Christmas. It's an honor to serve as a chaplain. It was a privilege to be with the soldiers, but I sure am grateful to be back with my family and this church family, and the soldiers are glad to be with their families as well. Well, growing up, what Christmas traditions did you celebrate in your home? What Christmas traditions did you celebrate in your home? And what of those traditions do you celebrate today in your home? Maybe your family eats special treats at Christmas. My wife, Laura, makes um, pretzel peppermint snacks, and she heats up, wow, I know, and she heats up some delicious white hot chocolate. Oh, maybe your family has some special Christmas treats that they like to enjoy. Maybe you have traditions about when to put up the decorations, when to put up the tree. Maybe you have multiple trees. We have trees that have different decorations on each of the the trees, different significance. And uh, aren't those decorations most meaningful when they're, they're homemade? Maybe you have some of those, or you picked up some Christmas ornaments from a a family vacation, or picked up some that represent something significant. Christmas traditions. Maybe you string lights outside your apartment or your house. Or maybe you have a blow-up Santa in your yard like the Rices do. That sign says, kill the peacock, which is a reference to Dr. Dew's statement about killing pride. So sort of a Sort of a redneck Christmas, right? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Or maybe you dress up every year as the original Saint Nick, like Dr. Butler in this picture. And he talks about the original Saint Nick to churches and, and other groups. I love this season and I love the traditions. One of our family traditions is to watch Christmas movies. Do you do that? Between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we pick out some movies, and some of these we watch every year. And um, just Wednesday night, we watched this Christmas classic, Elf. Anyone else watch this movie? All right, any fans? Don't be embarrassed. Some of you are like, I'm in church. I can't raise my hand for Will Ferrell. 
Elf is a human who's adopted by Papa Elf, played by Bob Newhart, and he's raised at the North Pole, and he journeys to New York City to find his biological father. It is a ridiculous comedy, but it makes me laugh every year. We also watch It's a Wonderful Life, 1946, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed. Clarence the Angel gives George Bailey the chance to see what life in Bedford Falls would be like had he never been born. It's sort of a throwback to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol in that way. Both stories explore what we now call the multiverse, which uh, is the idea that there are multiple universes that exist, and Marvel has done a lot with, in their recent movies, and gosh, that's a rabbit we don't want to chase this morning, but it could be really interesting. We watch other Christmas movies too, all right. As much as I enjoy eating Christmas treats, looking at the lights on houses and watching Christmas movies, I need a reminder of what Christmas is really about. Because after all, as much as I enjoy watching Elf with my family, I know that Christmas isn't about Christmas spirit that powers Santa's sleigh. That's not what Christmas is about. Maybe you need a reminder too. And as the Hegelman song reminded us, the meaning of Christmas is a gift that we can give to other people. Maybe you know other people around you who also need to know what Christmas is really about. Coworkers, relatives, people in your neighborhood. What is Christmas really about? My guess is if you were to ask people, what's the origin story of Christmas? I think most people on the street would say, well, it's about Jesus being born. I think most people would say that. But if you press the issue further with them, if you ask them, okay, but, but why was he born? Why was he born? Why did God's son come to earth to be born? I think some people would be able to come up with a good answer, a good Bible answer. But I think a lot of people would say, if you press them, why was Jesus born? I think they would say, you know, I don't really know. So for their benefit and for our benefit, let's consider this morning why God's son became a human. Yesterday, I was speaking with a friend of mine, and he said, oh, I heard you're going to fill in for Pastor Chad tomorrow. I said, I am. He said, what's your text? And I said, it's the classic Christmas text, Hebrews chapter 2. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me and smiled, and he wasn't sure if I was kidding or not. <laughs> but that's where we're going to be, Hebrews chapter 2. Look with me in your Bible, the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament, so it's near the end of your Bible. It's after the Gospels and Acts and Paul's letters, the book of Hebrews. And while you're finding it, I'll just give you a little bit of context. The big idea in the book of Hebrews is this. The big idea is Jesus is better than everything about the Jewish system. He's superior to everything about the Jewish system. And in chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is shown to be better than the prophets and angels. In chapter 3, he's better than Moses. In chapter 4, he's better than Joshua and the Sabbath rest. Chapter 8, the high priest. Chapter 9, the tabernacle. 
chapters 9 and 10, the sacrificial system, Jesus in every way is superior to the Jewish system. That's the big idea of the book of Hebrews. Now, specifically in in chapter 2, we're going to deal with angels and humanity and the reason why Jesus came. So, uh, as is our tradition here, please stand with me as I read from the Scripture, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, from whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he made Excuse me, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. You may be seated. So the main idea of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, is that Jesus is superior to angels despite and because of his humanity. Say what? Well, he quotes Psalm chapter 8 to establish that humans are lower than the angels in God's created order. We see that in verse 7. So something interesting we see in these early verses is that Scripture gives us an order to God's creation. You have at the very top, of course, God himself. And then beneath God, in his order of creation, are angels, these created beings. And beneath angels, you have humans. And then you have the rest of creation over which humans are to be stewards. So you have this order of creation. God, angels, humans, and the rest of creation. So realize what we have in the eternal Son of God becoming flesh is you have something 
unusual happening in this order of creation because you have God at the top, God the Son, greater than the angels, who becomes human, which is less than the angels. So that's one of the things that's being introduced here in Hebrews chapter 2. And so around verse 8, let's see if I can find it. Verse 9, uh, he says, We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. He was made lower than the angels for a little while in the incarnation. We use that word a lot. It's probably important to define it. Uh, the incarnation refers to the enfleshment of the Son of God. The enfleshment. The incarnation refers to the enfleshment of the Son of God. Anyone ever eat chili con carne? Chili con carne? It's nice, especially when it's cold outside. What is that? Chili con carne. It's chili with something in it. Chili with meat. Carne, from the Latin into the Spanish, we use the word chili with meat. The incarnation is the enfleshment or the enmeatment of God. When God's Son, the eternal Son, always existed, became flesh in Bethlehem, the incarnation. Verse 9, we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Let, let me just show you, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking a preaching principle in this outline. Some of you are studying preaching right now, students at the seminary, uh, and you may look at this and say, my word, and those of you who, who uh, have attended church for a while, you're used to three points. I promise these will go fast. But uh, just, just as a word of explanation, uh, this is also the attempt to simply uh, um, draw the message from the words of the text, exegesis, right? So this is what the Bible says, and so this is what the sermon is going to say. It's an effort to keep a close connection between the words of Scripture and the points of the text. And so it, it happens to fall out to eight. But let's look at these real quick, because Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9 through verse uh, 18 gives us eight reasons that God's son became flesh, that he became a human, all right? All packed in. So uh, look at them with me. Uh, the first reason you can see in verse nine is to taste death for everyone. That is, that is straight from the text. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Tasting death is an idiom that means to experience death fully. Did you know that Jesus was the only person ever born to die? You say, well, wait a minute, everyone who was born dies. Right, but that's not what I said. Jesus is the only person who was ever born to die. He was born with the purpose of dying. The reason he came was to give his life for humans. He came to live a perfect life. He came to teach about God's kingdom. He came to give his life for sinners. Uh, it's true that every person who is ever born dies with, of course, the exception of Enoch and Elijah, those present at the return of Christ. But otherwise, everyone else who is born will die. But Jesus 
made the decision to come in order to die. Second, he came to be perfected through suffering, and we see that in verse 10. Though sinless, Jesus was somehow perfected. Now, this is a difficult concept, but I I think it refers to Jesus completing God's plan for human redemption through his suffering on the cross. That's what the perfection is referring to, or the completion of God's plan. For example, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation. This ability to suffer, the opportunity for God to suffer could only happen through the incarnation. The the incarnation opened up the way for God to bleed. Jesus, fully human and fully divine, suffered. Number three, he became flesh to be our brother and of the same family. You see that in verses 11 through 13. Last week, I read those verses, um, and I was taken back by the concept that we would be included in God's family. Uh, Many of us have siblings. Maybe you have a brother, maybe you have a sister, maybe, maybe both. I have a brother and I have a sister. We are of the same family. This verse teaches us that those who are united to Christ through faith in Christ are part of God's family. And each of us united to Christ have a brother because we're adopted into God's family. And our brother is Jesus. Jesus. How's that for identity? Each of us draws our identity from different sources in life. We kind of establish who we are in our mind based on our possessions or our achievements or any number of things. And that's what I mean by identity. What Scripture teaches us is in this passage, our identity can be and should be based not on those other things, but on our relationship to God. It's not, hey, I'm I'm so-and-so, I have such-and-such. It's, I'm part of God's family, and Jesus is not ashamed to be called my brother, the Scripture says. Something about identity. Next, He came to destroy the power of the devil, verse 14. In case you think this verse is one of those one-off, kind of unusual statements in Scripture that we don't know what to do with, so we just kind of pass by because nothing else in Scripture says something like this. Well, that's not the case. This passage does say that that, uh, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, and we find a similar statement in 1 John 3, verse 8. 1 John 3.8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. We sing about this in Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We sing, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, another reference to the devil. 
we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Another reason that Jesus came, to free us from the fear of death, verse 15. Death is an ongoing part of being a human. I don't have to tell you this, but I'm restating it for our benefit. And the last 18 months or so have been especially brutal with this global epidemic that has um, taken loved ones from, uh, from many of us. Many of us can point to people that we knew uh, who have died in the last 18 months. And while all of us would affirm God's goodness and, and the perfection of his timing, he does no thing wrong, all things he does are good, we still would point to some of those situations and say, that person left too soon. This is the reality we, we deal with as, as humans, trusting God and at the same time grieving over some of these losses. Death is a harsh reality, and if we give it serious thought, if we think about our own mortality, we can become fearful. This verse tells us we don't have to be afraid of death. As followers of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid to step into eternity. Why? Because Jesus has destroyed the devil's power of death. Death was the greatest weapon that the devil had against us. And when Jesus defeated it by his death and resurrection, he overcame the greatest power that the devil has to hold over us to hold us into in slavery, these verses tell us, or the fear of death. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason that matters is not only was Jesus raised, but he promises to raise his followers like he was raised. At the death of Lazarus, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. We don't have to be afraid of death. That's one of the reasons Jesus came, to free us from the fear of death. Number six, he came to be a faithful and merciful high priest, verse 17. The high priest represented the Israelites before God and the high priest would approach God only in specific times and places and manners prescribed by God. Today, we have pastors and priests, and they are only human, and they sometimes fail in small ways, sometimes in big ways. They are fallible incestors, incestors. one more time, intercessors, intercessors and ministers before God. Demonstrating fallibility of, a, <laughs> of an intercessor in that moment when I couldn't even say the word. Jesus, however, is the only faithful, reliable, true, holy, eternal, and perfect priest. Perfect intercessor between us and God the Father. Number seven, Verse 17 tells us he came to atone for our sins. To atone means to make it one with God. 
here's you, here's God, you're separated. Christ came to bring you together, to reconcile you to God. That's what atonement is. Our sins have separated us from the Holy Creator, but he loved us too much to leave us in that condition. In 2015, 21 Pilots released an album called Blurry Face. I'm not recommending it to you. I'm just referring to it. And the first song on that album is called Heavy Dirty Soul. It's three words that are just mashed together into one word. And that's the title of the song, Heavy Dirty Soul. And the lyrics say this, gangsters don't cry, therefore, therefore I'm Mr. Misty-Eyed, therefore I'm. In other words, I'm a tough guy and I don't cry, but actually tears are welling up in his eyes. And then the singer cries out these words, can you save me? Can you save my, can you save my heavy, dirty soul? For me, for me, can you save my heavy, dirty soul? That song came to mind because 21 Pilots is in that chorus articulating the human heart's deepest need before a holy God, atonement. And I don't mean to suggest that 21 Pilots understands the message of the gospel. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. In this song, they're simply articulating the need of the human heart for forgiveness, for salvation. Can you save my, here's the recognition of their depravity, my heavy, dirty soul. They're looking for help. And what the song doesn't do is provide the answer. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came for the heavy, dirty soul. He came to atone for sins. Why? But why become flesh to do that? Gregory of Nazianzus was a fourth century church leader, and he famously said, the unassumed is unredeemed. The unassumed is unredeemed. In other words, Jesus assumed humanity to redeem humanity. Or Jesus became a human to save humans. That's the explanation for Bethlehem. That's why he became flesh. In verse 18, he also, he came to help those who are being tempted. He came to help those who are being tempted. You realize before Bethlehem, if, if somebody wanted to shake their fist at God in frustration or concern and, and, and just say, God, you don't know what it's like down here. And I realize you dwell with us in the tabernacle and you created us and you know us, but, but you don't really know what it's like to be down here because, because you've never lived in a body like this and you've never suffered the hardships that we suffer and you've never been tempted to sin and it's just hard living for you and, and you wouldn't understand. And... And before Bethlehem, I think someone could make a strong case for that. But after Bethlehem, we have that 
See how the incarnation changes everything? God did come down, just like we sang earlier in this service. Your love came down. The eternal Son of God, God himself, came down, lived in a body, just like your body, just like my body. And Scripture says was, well, verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Before Bethlehem, we could have said, God, you don't know what it's like. It's really tough to live for you. But now we can't say that because Jesus says, I know exactly what it's like to be tempted. I know exactly what it's like to suffer. I know exactly what it's like to be betrayed by those closest to you. God knows what it's like when you and I are tempted because Jesus was tempted. And he can help us in our time of need. That's it. Those are the, those are the eight reasons that God's son became flesh. Those are, those are the reasons for, for Christmas, all tucked into these verses in Hebrews chapter 2. I love the Christmas traditions. I love the decorations. I'll keep watching the movies. Uh, even when some of those traditions have very little to do with the, the real meaning of Christmas. In the midst of all of those traditions, though, in the midst of all of those events, in the midst is Jesus. Jesus. Sermons require a response of some sort. So how would God have you respond? Let me just offer some suggestions. First, if you've never trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, that is your greatest need. Right relationship with God, being forgiven of your sin and being reconciled or made right in your relationship with your creator, that is your most important need. Don't eat lunch today until you have that settled. Talk with someone. Uh, Pastors Noah and Corey will be up front in just a moment in the invitation. I'll be up front. I invite you to come up and talk with someone. If you don't talk with them, talk with someone else who can tell you about how to turn from your ways and your sin and turn to Christ for salvation. Next, maybe you've already placed your faith in Jesus, but you've somehow fallen out of step with him. Maybe you've begun to live life for your own purposes and your own aims rather than his purposes and his aims. And and you need him to recalibrate your life, to realign your life and your focus away from yourself and your own desires and toward him. If that's you, turn to him today. Turn to Jesus and surrender to him and ask him to give you the strength to live for him. None of us can do it in our own strength. None of us. But God, by his spirit, can empower you to live the life that he calls you to. And so maybe maybe you need some prayer 
in that regard or encouragement or direction, support. So I invite you to respond to him in that way. Maybe God is calling you to another step of obedience, whether it's following him in uh, baptism as a believer or joining this church or making some other decision, whatever decision God lays on your heart, we're here to pray for you and talk with you. And I invite you to respond to God now as we stand and sing.